Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please stand. We'll begin in prayer, and Dr. Smith will lead us in that. I just want to remind us before we pray that uh, Dave Urbum taught us that sacred scripture is the soul of theology. So there's, to me, there's nothing more exciting than that. I think scripture is even more exciting than Black Death. But that's just, <laughs> that's just me. That's just me. Um, this, this afternoon, I had a chance to um, have lunch, uh, our faculty, with Archbishop Lori, and I could see the heaviness on his face. And he said, you know, um, he said, please pray um, fervently for the city of Baltimore. And so I want to ask that tonight we pray for the needs around the world for um, those in Nepal, certainly with the death toll that just keeps on unfortunately rising, and certainly much closer to home for um, everyone connected with what's going on in Baltimore. Let's pray, please. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Well, it's very nice to be with you uh, once again. I always love coming to the Institute of Catholic Culture. And tonight, I think we really do have a very exciting topic. It's the continuation of what we began talking about last week, the Johannine Epistles. And hopefully you have an outline. Um, it's a separate one from the one you would have received last week. So this one says part two. If you need one, please see uh, Melanie or Monica. I'm sure they'll be able to pass them out. Raise a hand. Uh, also, did you see the Holy of Holies as you came in? On the way in, it's actually uh, a replica of the Jerusalem Temple. Say more about why I brought that later, but it actually took about 30 hours to build with my daughter, and um, I'll, I'll tell you more about that later. But let's let's dive into uh, tonight's tonight's topic. As you may remember, I selected a passage from Third John as sort of the theme verse to go along with the title that Deacon Carnazzo came up with: "That your joy may be full." So near the top of the page, uh, let's just read that. No greater joy can I have than this to hear that my children follow the truth. That's a great scripture memory verse. And don't let it be said that only Protestants memorize scripture. Uh, St. Augustine talked about it. Thomas Aquinas talked about it. Pope Benedict talked about it. Um, and it's just a very valuable thing to do. I actually, at Mount St. Mary's, uh, you know, require my seminarians to, to memorize scripture because we need truth in our minds so it can go down to our heart and help us live our lives well, right? And this is a great one. Okay, um, let's look at the, um, the outline here, especially where it says the strategy. Let's go right down to point number two. Tonight in part two, we'll return to 1 John. If you, if you were here last week, what we did is I tried to introduce the Johannine epistles, talked a little bit about authorship. Uh, we spent some time looking at the prologue of 1 John because I said, if you understand that, you'll understand the Johannine epistles. And I would even go further to say, it will also help you to understand John's gospel. 
and we actually compared and contrasted the prologue of John's Gospel with the prologue, just four verses of 1 John. But then we spent the rest of our time looking at the shorter epistles. I joked and called them the Instagrams or the emails, right, of the New Testament, because 3 John is the distinction of being the shortest book, um, just a few paragraphs in the entire Bible. Um, tonight, though, in part two, we'll return to 1 John, and we're kind of going to move chapter by chapter now, and a couple things. We're going to pay close attention to a crisis in John's community that threatened its unity and the faith of many individual believers. And then we'll also come to better understand uh, what John really is getting at in the famous God is love passage uh, in 1 John 4 and much, much more, as I think you'll see. Okay, so what I've given you is uh, to begin with an outline of the epistle. You can take a look at it there. But what I want to do is, if you turn to page 2, is dive in to 1 John beginning with verse 5 in chapter 1. Because as I said, we already covered the prologue in some detail last week. So let me read this opening paragraph here. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live according to the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, verse 10, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Okay, if you actually glance up at the outline, I guess it's on the bottom of page one and top of page two, just to kind of get a framework here of the letter. So we have the prologue, right back on page one. And then there's sort of two major headings that I have for you. Uh, on page one, you can see that heading number two is living in the light, and then uh, heading number three is living as children of God. Those are going to be the two main topics. The first one, living in the light, will take us through um, chapters one and two, and then um, Roman numeral three, living as children of God, will take us basically through the rest of the letter, chapters three through five. Okay? So let's take a look at this first section then, living in the light. Um, in verse 5, uh, I want to point out this, uh, this phrase, God is light, is a very um, important Johannine term. I tell my seminarians that if you want to know St. John, you've got to get to know his vocabulary. Um, it's one of the first things I say when I teach the Gospel of John and also teach the epistles, is there are certain key terms, there's about 10 of them, that reoccur, like Lamb or Lamb of God, light, truth, glory, there's a number of them, and this is one of those terms. On the outline, I say, like the Gospel of John, 1 John frequently uses terms like life, light, and darkness. Um, an example there um, in the footnote, from also from the Gospel of John. And in this way, both the Gospel and this epistle engage the hearer in the language of Genesis. That's right. Um, this is programmatic and intentional. In other words, this is strategic by John. He's trying to have his uh, listeners, his hearers, understand the truth that he wants to proclaim in kind of an Old Testament language or vocabulary. And the reason is that one of John's central themes is one of what I call creation, new creation. So you have to first understand what the first creation is in Genesis. And of course, John's 
audience is primarily Jewish, so they would have understood that very well. And then building off of that, he plays off that, those original creation themes in Genesis and also in Exodus to introduce or reintroduce or to deepen his church's faith in Christ, in the church, and so on. So it's kind of like a pair. Okay, now look at verse 6. If you would, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live according to the truth. Now, let me introduce an important theme in the letter. The apostle St. John is compelled to expose a problem. In fact, I would call it a growing schism in his church in which some former members are deceiving, obviously themselves, but also some adherent believers that are in John's church and in good faith into accepting their false beliefs or false doctrines. And we're going to talk more about that, and I'm going to explain to you as best as I can, simply as I can, exactly what we think is going on in terms of this crisis and how John handles it. Because it will help us understand a lot about the early church, but more importantly, I think it will also help us learn some lessons that we can take right out of here tonight with us and back to our homes. Again in verse 7, this image of light walking in the light. Um, this takes us up into the realm of who God is. Symbol of light is used to speak of God's perfection, in which there is, as he says, no darkness at all. So you could say that at the beginning of this letter, John is calling the church to deeper holiness, to deeper sanctity. And he has in mind both purity of mind, which we might call sound doctrine or dogma, and also purity of heart, which is sound moral living. They work hand in hand. Now, uh, the next point. In what follows in chapters 1 and 2, John will describe four conditions or expectations for what walking in the light means. John never just speaks in platitudes. He's a very practical apostle. He may have lofty ideas, right? The, the image of the eagle is associated with John because his theology soars, right, up to the heavens. But he is still the fisherman who walked along the Sea of Galilee, right? And he's very practical. And he's going to give us some conditions or expectations to help us understand what it means to walk in the light. It's not just a bunch of poetry and platitudes with John. It's here's the ideal. Now let me tell you how you can do that. So let's look at these one by one. There's four of them, right? The first condition, to confess and to renounce sin. To confess and to renounce sin. If you look at the bottom of the page, let me just try to explain this here. This was a community that was in crisis. And if you read through 1 John, which would be a great sort of homework assignment or follow-up, read it through as I kind of sketch out the big picture, I think you'll see exactly what John is getting at. But let me try to summarize it here for you. John's church is embroiled in a heretical crisis. Some former members have deceived themselves and others into believing that it is possible to not sin. Look again at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it's, it's clear that for John, to bring this up at the beginning of the letter makes it, we could say, a top priority, right? He's getting to it right off the, right off the jump. Well, how is it possible to not sin? Next page, the answer, it isn't. It's a false teaching and it's a very dangerous claim of what he refers to as antichrist or antichrists. Uh, it's probably the case that it was more than one individual 
that there was a, a number, at least several, of what he calls antichrist figures, and I'll explain what he means by that as well as we get more into this. Um, now, what's the root of this problem? Um, there are various theories. If you look down at the footnote, and that's where you need the specs, right? I say that um, a number of theories, one of them was proposed by Raymond Brown. I don't want to go too far into it, but just to give you a theologian to attach to it, has one theory, there are others. Um, and um, he wrote this book called The Community of the Beloved Disciple, which he lays out uh, a whole sort of program of what he believes led to this crisis, sort of step by step. And if you want a copy of at least this outline, um, you can see me afterwards. I've got a handful of them, and take a look at it for yourself. But here's what I say about it. Um, in my view, his four-phase model of the history of the community, John's community, has some valuable insights, yet it is also somewhat, at least to me, speculative in nature. There's no way to prove it, right? Um, John, um, Brown's history of John's community is sound, and this is important, only if his reading of the Gospel of John and 1 John is correct. If the so-called community of the beloved disciple developed over some five decades in the manner that he envisions it did. If not, then we're kind of veering in some other direction. So you can put some stock in it if you like, but my caution would be that um, what I want to do is stick to what we do know. I, I'm not quite convinced that uh, Brown is necessarily wrong, but I'm also not convinced that uh, you know, I'm going to you know, bet my mortgage that he's right. I think there's some helpful insights, and certainly in the big picture, his basic ideas of what caused the, the crisis, I think some of that is sound. It's just, I'm not quite prepared to follow him into his forest of here's exactly what happened step by step. I'd rather sort of lay out what I think are the main things that we do know just from looking at John itself. So, um, in any case, there are various theories as to the roots of the problem. The following, though, seems likely, and I'm basing this on the text itself. First, the community was established on the firm foundation of the apostle himself. It's clear when you read all three letters, these are his churches. I mean, it's the church of Jesus Christ, right? right? But he is the apostle who is the authority figure. We saw that last week, right, when he's confronting um, the, the figure in uh, 2nd and 3rd John that is trying to pry away some of the authority from the uh, leaders that John has appointed. So it's clear that John is the authority figure. That's number one. Uh, so he's not sort of intervening in someone else's business. This is a church founded by the Apostle John. Two, sometime afterward, while the Apostle, should say, was away, some schismatic leader or leaders uh, who left the church or were perhaps excommunicated, perhaps by John himself, established a heretical breakaway community or network of communities. If you um, just turn over to the next page, I put this in sort of outline form for you. And you may have been lucky enough to get a color copy that I made. There's also some black and white. It's the same thing, but it, it sort of gives you an idea of what was going on. I kind of like my color one, but I don't know if everyone has one, so apologies. But if John's community is re represented in the red cross, or the maybe gray cross, at the left of the page, what I think was happening was that you have some solid believers in the color copy. It's sort of represented by the white dots, right, or the lighter colored dots. And then you had sort of this migration going on out to this other community or set of communities. And what John is doing is trying to address the problem right here, right? Right at the edge of the community in the sense that he, he's aware of those who are the most susceptible, for whatever reasons, in leaving. So I think the bulk of the letter is addressed both to those on the edges, okay, if you can see this here, 
and then also to the entire community. But he's particularly addressing those who are most at risk, as any good pastor would. But he's also addressing the whole community. I'm also convinced that at least some of what he's saying, he knows is going to reach the heretics, because it's not like there's just a wall here, right? These people know each other. And so he'll mention them in sort of stern language, and it's clear that he's kind of probably indirectly addressing them as well. Okay, so let's get back to um, the page that we are on here, which is, um, where are we at? Page, uh, page, t- uh, page three. Um, okay, so secondly, sometime afterward, some schismatic leaders broke away and were took some with them. Third, John writes and warns the church that such individuals went out from us. They were not loyal to Christ or his commandments, but embrace, using Paul's language here, another gospel. That's what Paul says about other schismatics in his letter to the Galatians. And he refers to them as the Antichrist. Now let me just point out a couple of the scriptures that I mentioned in in the parentheses. First look at chapter 2, verse uh, 18 and 19. Children, one of his favorite terms for the church, right? Children. It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So whatever this Antichrist figure or figures are, John's aware that there are sort of false teachers cropping up in various uh, ways, threatening various churches. Now his church, okay? Therefore, we know that it is the last hour, okay? Which he's, the last hour shouldn't be taken literally, but it does refer to, in some sense, uh, the, the last age has begun with um, the, the, re- the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection. We're now in the final days, right? So he's using language. The last hour means, you know, if you think about, like, remember the nuclear clock and whatever, with, or atomic clock, and, you know, 5 to 12, and if you're over the age of 40 or 50, you probably know what I'm talking about. Uh, if John's kind of saying, hey, it's 5 to 12 here, right? Which is a way of saying that it's imminent, right? It's more important than ever to hold fast. Um, you get the same sort of theme in the book of Revelation. Now, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. What's he talking about with all these pronouns here, right? I think what he's saying is this group of anti-Christ figures, these heretical leaders, were originally part of the community. That's what he means when he says they went out from us. Uh, the term that he uses, and this, I think this is on your outline um, down below, is prosago. It's actually where we get our word progressive. Uh, he's not taking, this is not a liberal, uh, conservative liberal thing. John has in mind those who advanced or thought they advanced beyond the apostles' teaching. And I would argue that even today, you can be prosago to the left or to the right. It's important to stay in the center with the church, right? Not to be too far over one way or to the other way, right, on some kind of um, ideology. And, and John is saying that whatever the problems were, pros agos, they went out, they progressed, they advanced beyond Christ and me. Therefore, they were not of us. So what he's saying is, look, these were kind of false believers because the litmus test is they didn't remain in the community. John's giving us a kind of an insight here for what it means to be a, a, a true believer, right? And one of the litmus tests is that you remain in the faith, remain in the community. John's basically saying, hey, they were with us, but they were kind of like wolves in sheep's clothing. They were never truly committed, because if they were, they would renounce their sins, they would repent, and they would, you know, readapt into the community. But they left us. Therefore, they were never really a part of us. He's basically saying, don't be sort of taken away by their fanciful ideas. 
Okay, back to my outline now. Um, he refers to these troublemakers, as I say, as the Antichrist or Antichrists. They're also mentioned in um, uh, 2 John by name as well. Now, who were they? Again, various proposals. They may have been what some call a proto-Gnostic group. Now, I don't have really time to develop Gnosticism. I'm sure a lot of you, because you're very intelligent in this group, may have heard of Gnosticism or even studied it in some, some way. But my sort of compact Reader's Digest definition is that it was a kind of um, popular philosophical set of beliefs that basically believed that everything in the visible and fleshly world was corrupt, corrupted, and uh, evil, and that the spirit or the, soul, the world of the soul was good. So body bad, spirit good, or body bad, soul good. So they had this idea that sort of you would escape the body in the prison of the body. Well, those are ideas are not Christianity, right? We await the resurrection of the body. Some of these um, beliefs actually led some Gnostics um, to critique Christian marriage because they said, well, you say marriage is good, but it's basically it's fornicating in the flesh. And Augustine had to take those people on. That group was called the Manichaeans. And Augustine was actually part of that group for one period of his life before he finally went beyond it and came into the fullness of Orthodox Christianity. So there's various groups, um, but it appears as though if they weren't Gnostic, they were at least dualistic, by which I mean they had this kind of antithetical view of the world that if you had the Spirit or in the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, then you were sort of had everything that you need. And with my seminarians, I say they had sort of an over-spiritualized view of the Holy Spirit that basically put him way up high and diminished Christ in the process, right? And I think that's what's going on in this letter, and I'll try to continue to show you why I think that is. Uh, as I say, this theology of this Antichrist group was highly flawed. Here it is. Number four, they specifically professed Christ in some sense, but denied or diminished his incarnation. Look at 1 John 4, uh, verse 2. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit which does not confess Jesus in the flesh is not of God. Then he goes on and talks about Antichrist once again. So it's clear that whatever drove this, this heretical group is that somehow they had a very false understanding of the importance of Jesus Christ and particularly the importance of Jesus Christ in the flesh, the enfleshment of Jesus Christ, the incarnation. So they diminish or deny the incarnate Christ and in his place embraced a kind of overdeveloped theology of the Holy Spirit. You'd say, well, how can you love the Holy Spirit enough? I would say you can't. It's not a matter of loving the Holy Spirit. It's a matter of exalting him and in the process diminishing the work of Christ and the person of Christ as a living and ongoing reality, indeed the center of their reality, right, as it should be, which keeps them safe. Instead, they kind of set Christ to the side. And I made sort of this, you know, uh, quip last week that I, I kind of understand this heretical group as seeing Jesus Christ as sort of the FedEx man, right? He delivers a box and then he goes away. And this box that he delivered was the Holy Spirit. And so once they received the Spirit, whether they perceived that through baptism or through the teaching of this heretical group, they no longer needed Christ. And that means they no longer needed all that Christ brought, his commandments, the sacraments, because to, to receive the Eucharist is to receive Jesus, right? The sacraments, uh, sacred scripture, his teachings. And you're going to see all of these things interconnected as you read through the letter. 
John keeps saying, if you love Christ, keep his commandments. Because he knows that to embrace the incarnate Christ means to listen to the words that he said and to take them as your own. If you set those aside and you say, well, I have the Spirit, now you begin to disconnect yourself from his teachings, right? And you just basically float in this kind of esoteric bubble that says, I can't sin, and I, if it looks like I'm sinning, well, that's just my fleshly part of me, and, but the spirit part of me is what's really important, and that's safe, and that's saved. And so, you know, these people are likely sinning and doing all sorts of immoral, involved in immoral behavior. But then when they were confronted by other Christians and said, hey, you've got to cut that out, they would say, we're not sinning. You know, it's my spirit in me that's perfected. This is just the fleshly world. So it's possible that they had this kind of disconnected view of reality, a skewed view of reality. Um, Okay, fifth, above all, these breakaway leaders embraced a theology of spirit-filled perfectionism, which denied the possibility, strange as it sounds, of sin. In a sense, it was as if Christ, as I said, delivered the gift of the Holy Spirit in his earthly life, and having deposited this gift, returned to heaven and ceased to have ongoing importance. Having been anointed by or in the Spirit, these heretical um, believers seemed or believed to have reached an enlightened state of perfection, so they thought, in which it is impossible for them to sin any longer, regardless of the fact that they actually were like any person sinning. In fact, it may have actually caused them to sin more because there's nothing to keep that in check. It's not a problem, right? Even as they go out and hate their brother, which is a sin, right? John's going to call them on that, or any number of other things. Um, perhaps even what John calls the sin that leads to death, which is denying Christ in the flesh. That's the big one here, right? Um, they, they just feel like they're kind of inoculated to sin. So now the gift of the Spirit fills them and protects them from any sort of fleshly corruption. Six, as a result, these heretics believe that they do not need Christ or all that comes with what I call the enfleshment of Jesus, the sacraments, sacred scripture, right? Liturgy, reconciliation, it's probably not the case that they hated Christ, but they're anti-Christ inasmuch as they had no need of him, or so they thought in their lives. They had the Spirit, that's all they need. Seven, true perfection. Now, here's where John's going to come in with the, with the uh, uh, sort of prescription here. True perfection, John counters, comes not by denying the reality of sin, but by growing in sanctity by confessing one's sins renouncing sin and keeping Christ's commandments. That's this essential prescription in the letter, clearly. Eighth, and then finally here, as always, a living, vibrant, worship, vibrant relationship with Christ, access through liturgy, sacraments, scripture, prayer, and fellowship, it's not on here, but it ought to be, is the path to spiritual, quote, success. To deny the necessity of Christ's incarnation is also to deny the need for all those other things I just mentioned. Uh, for all these so-called staples of the Christian life. To deny these staples as necessary for one's spiritual growth is to deceive oneself and deny Christ. Listen to what he says in 2 John, uh, sorry, 1 John 2, verse 4 to 6. He who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, that's, I know it's very, it seems like very kind of stark, even harsh language, but John needs to kind of rattle these people to, to snap them back into reality, right? It's sort of like they started off good, but some other believers came along that had this other idea that kind of an easy, breezy Christian life, right? You've got the Spirit. You've got all you need. Don't fret about all these things that John taught you. You've got the Spirit. And some were obviously, um, I don't say gullible, but they were sort of, they were attracted to these ideas. 
By this we may be sure that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. That's another great scripture memory verse. Read it again. By this we may be sure that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. Sometimes, sadly, some fundamentalist Christians and others pick fights. Sometimes I've seen this happen with Catholics who try to persuade them that they're not saved. This is a great verse to remind yourself if anybody comes at you with that sort of mentality. Don't let them pull you astray here. The point is, if you can honestly look yourself in the mirror and say, to the best of my ability, I'm trying to follow Christ by doing what he says, you're in safe hands according to St. John. By this way, may be sure, confident that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. You turn that around, though, and it's kind of a warning. John's basically saying, and if you're not, then he's beginning to question whether you are really in him. Turn the page with me, if you would, please. There's that little drawing. Um, if it's not in color, you can get your crayons out at home and do it just like I did. Just joking with you. Now, that's the first condition, and I spent a lot of time in it because as I explained it, I wanted to explain uh, the big picture of what was going on. But John has some other conditions about what it means to walk in the light. So let's look at the other uh, three here. Uh, the second condition is to practice obedience. Look at chapter 2, verse uh, 3. And by this we may be sure that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly love for God is perfected. It can also read, is being perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. Likely here, the context of from the beginning is from the beginning of, of Christ's ministry or perhaps from the beginning of your baptism, right? But he's talking about the beginning of either the Christian life or Christ's earthly ministry. In either case, it's kind of the same idea, right? Which is going all the way back to the, your rootedness in Christ. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. In other words, the gospel. Yet I am writing to you a new commandment, um, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says that he is in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness still. So again, John using this language of light and darkness to say, look, it's basic, you have to ask yourself some basic questions. If you're kind of you know, hypnotized by these ideas and you're kind of turned around, John's trying to make it very, very simple, right? If you keep the commandments and hold fast to Christ, you're going to be on the main railroad track that you need to be on. So again, back to the outline. Under letter C, John says that along with what was said above, he's now underscoring the need for obedience, faithfulness to Christ's commandments, which will lead to love and forgiveness. Why he goes back to the commandments is because he knows that Christ's words are true and life-giving. If you stay close to those, if you try to practice those, those through God's grace, with humility to the best of your ability, and to live in them, it will... It will lead, by necessity, to love and forgiveness. So he, he kind of has this picture that if you get that main thing right, everything else will take care of itself. If you're practicing Christ's words and adopting them as true and not setting them aside, it will help you to become a more loving and more forgiving person. He knows that those who try to practice Christ's words, live by the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, etc., 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 if they do those things, they will become, over time, more loving and won't hate their brother. You know how James says faith without works is dead? I think John's 
attitude here is faith without faithfulness is no faith at all, right? Meaning faithfulness is embracing in your mind and your heart Christ's words. So what's a takeaway for us? Well, to go back and study some of Christ's words. Maybe begin with the Sermon on the Mount, right? Chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. A nice exercise would be just pick out one idea in, you know, maybe chapter 5. One idea or verse in chapter 6 and one idea in chapter 6. There's a whole lot in there, right? Just pick out three that really strike you as things that you want to work on this year or maybe this month. It would be a great way to begin. When you feel like those are going perhaps better, you still want to work on them, but now maybe you can go back again and find another one in chapter 5, another one in chapter 6, another one in chapter 7, right? There's lots of ways that we can kind of begin to try to take John's advice and to, to put some teeth into it here. Uh, chapter 2, verse 15, he's going to go back again and uh, take the language of Genesis and help us understand something very important about the spiritual life. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Again, that's part of the problem of the heretical group. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And then he says, and the world is passing away. Well, where does that language come from? It comes right out of Genesis chapter 3. If you have a Bible, and I sure hope you do, turn with me just quickly to Genesis 3. We go back to the original sin of the woman and the man in the garden, right? And in the critical scene in which Eve succumbs to the temptation of the serpent, right? We read this, Genesis 3, 6. So the woman saw that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were not to eat of, was good for food, delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took of it and ate and gave also to her husband. This is known as the threefold lust or threefold temptation. And John picks right up on it here. And almost, not word for word, but has the same basic idea in his epistle. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That was Eve's threefold temptation in Adam's as well, right? And I think what um, he, John might also point us to is the temptation of Christ. So one more passage to look at is Matthew chapter 4. And had we time, we could go through this, but this is a whole lesson unto itself. The, tempt, the mystery of Jesus in the wilderness, as I call it. You go back and read Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, and there you see the threefold lust, Right? Matthew chapter 4, right? The tempter came to Jesus in verse 3. It says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Right? Lust of the flesh, sensual appetites, right? Jesus overcomes that with Scripture, of course. What about the lust of the eyes? Look at verse 9. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Well, there you see the visual dimension of how we're tempted by things, again, through sense perception, right? Particularly our eyes and so on. And Jesus, of course, overcomes that also with Scripture. Be gone, Satan. is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the pride of life, back in verse 6, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for he is written, he will give his angels charge over you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone, right? Which comes out of... Uh, Psalm 91, and Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, which is a double meaning, right? Because it's a commandment, but it's also him saying it as God, so it's a kind of an affirmation of his own divinity. Uh, I got to show you this is really cool. Go back to Psalm 91, because I want to show you what, the, what Satan 
what Satan does here is really kind of, it's actually kind of humorous, I think. Uh, so Satan has uh, read scripture to him, right? Because Satan knows scripture. And um, look at Psalm 91, verse 11, right? If he will give your char his angels charge over you to guard you in all your ways, on their hands they will bear you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Would that Satan would have read the next verse. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent he will trample underfoot. Hmm, wonder why he didn't have that one in there. Uh, but my, my point is, to go back to 1 John, it, we look at Genesis and we see the origin point of these threefold lusts, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And I think there's two reasons that John brings it up here, right? One is, again, his creation, new creation theology almost demands it, that we go back to the beginning. But I think he also has in mind Christ's temptation by the wilderness. And the difference is striking between Adam and Jesus, right? Where Adam and Eve fail the test, right, in spades, unfortunately, Jesus passes the test. And not only that, but this is my next point, that Jesus and the church give us the prescription for dealing with these temptations. And they're as old as Lent itself. The spiritual disciplines of prayer, almsgiving, and fasting are ancient and trusted and true prescriptions for overcoming these threefold temptations in the power, not our own power, in the power of the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and model of holiness. Right? How does fasting help us to become uh, spiritually minded, to become strong in faith, right? Well, if you're actually hungry, right, and maybe thinking of going indulging in whatever, a Big Mac or whatever it is, right, and you're committed to fasting, it will actually help you if you, if you follow that ancient spiritual practice to hopefully push through by the power of the Holy Spirit to be fed by something deeper than just this, you know, mac and cheese, right? But by something that is life-giving, as Jesus said, the Word of God itself. So it may seem counterintuitive. When you're hungry, eat, right? There's nothing wrong with that, following that in some sense, right? God's given us our appetites. But when those appetites turn into desires that, that, that can control us and take us away from the things of God, say, for example, gluttony, then fasting has a very practical dimension. Same thing with almsgiving, right? When we're threatened by pride and materialism, Giving alms not only does good to the poor, but it does good to our soul as well, right? Lay up your, uh, your treasure not on earth, but in heaven, right? So I think there's a, a deeper mystery in Scripture that John is just kind of um, um, getting at here that if we really follow his advice, will plunge us into Genesis, into Matthew, and into some very practical teachings that the church has given us centuries and centuries and centuries ago. Now, there's one final condition in the first part of the letter and that is simply keeping the faith. Look at chapter 2, verse 18, and following up to verse 29. I won't read the whole section, but you can kind of scan it there, right? And in this section, we've already heard, he says, Antichrist is coming. By the way, Antichrist is not a term that appears in Revelation. Did you know that? I mentioned it last week. A lot of people think it does. It doesn't. There's beasts, there's dragons, there's all kinds of things. There's no Antichrist. It's actually only right here in uh, 1 John and 2 John. Um, and then this whole business of anointing, right? These, these heretical groups seem to suggest that if you're anointed in their kind of ideology or in the Holy Spirit in some spiritualized sense, then you can't sin. That's a false teaching. How does John counter this? Well, look at verse 26. I write this to you about those who would deceive you, but the anointing which you received from him, from Christ, abides in you. And you have no need, no need that anyone should teach you as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie. So 
John's prescription is, they say, hey, well, hey, you know, they're offering this other thing, which is this kind of special deal, a special anointing, right? Um, only 1995. And he says, no, 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 you don't need that. You've already got that anointing, and it comes from your baptism, right, which is the beginning of your spiritual life. So again, John's not really offering rocket science. He's going back to the fundamentals, right, to the commandments, to remembering and renewing our baptism, to the Eucharist, to liturgy. Again, they went out, out from us, the word prosago, they progressed beyond us. Again, progress in the spiritual life is desirable, provided it does not lead us to believe we can advance beyond Christ and or his apostles. Such progress is no progress at all and is the root of these heretical schemes that are going on. Uh, look, verse 29, he says, um, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who does right is born of him. He wants us to have confidence in Christ's coming. I think that's why he says the hour is eminent. Not that he's trying to scare people or hype them up, but he's basically trying to liberate them from false teachings and false freedoms and, and return them to the, the very fundamentals of the faith. Now, we've got about 15 minutes left. I want to turn quickly to the second half of the letter, which is basically chapter 3, 4, and 5. Um, in chapter 3, a beaut another beautiful memory verse, see what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and this is my favorite part, and so we are. So he has it out there in the sky, right? It's like, you know, his hand goes up. See that we should be, and this is what we actually really are. It's not just this great ideal, but it's something that we now possess. Um, John repeatedly calls the church technia, children, in Greek, children, many, many times. And through the grace of baptism, he's reminded us of this uh, in this letter and also in 1 John, that we have been adopted into the family of God as the sons and daughters. See John 1, verse 12 and 13 as well. Another great verse is chapter uh, 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's a lot of mystery under this verse. But I think what we can say is this. All of the faithful will one day see Christ as he really was. John had this experience several times at least, right? The first time was before the resurrection at the transfiguration when he had sort of a, uh, in a prefigured way, a, a vision, uh, an actual um, reality of Christ in the flesh in his uh, glorified state, right? But that was just for kind of a moment, right? But then in the resurrection when he saw Christ on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So he actually can say as one, apart from us, that he has actually seen the resurrected Lord, seeing Jesus in all of his glory, and that, of course, forever changed him and all the apostles. His experience of Jesus Christ in the flesh, remember last week we beheld him and all that stuff, awaits all of us. And John is just, he's so anxious that we would not just uh, assent to that intellectually, but really kind of live in that truth. What a great truth to walk out with tonight, right? That we will truly see him as he is in all of his glory. And not only him, but of course, the entire blessed trinity. We will partake, as St. Peter says, of the divine nature. Now, just in the first half of the letter, John lays out a basic ideal and then conditions. He does so in the second half of the letter too. In fact, in this one, there's actually five. The first condition is again, he mentioned it before, renouncing sin. Chapter three, verse four, everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, continues sinning, okay? No one who sins has either seen him or knows him. 
Little children, let no one deceive you. He who does right is righteous as he is righteous. He who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God commits sin, for God's nature abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, to be clear here, John is not saying, he's not meaning this in a literal way. He's kind of talking about the pattern of one's life, right? He's talking about one who lives a, a law-abiding life and the new law, that is, in Christ, versus someone who, who just disregards it. They're not even trying, right? They're simply lawless, is the way he puts it. And that's the view of the cessationists. And you can see why that would be very appealing, yes? These people are saying, hey, you don't have to worry about sin. A kind of easy believism. John's rebuttal is basically saying here, that, look, there's no easy way out. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. What the schismatics promised was nothing other than an illusion. A spiritual perfectionism without the work, without the effort, without the tears, without the heartache, without the pain, without the day-by-day -day struggle. That is not sinlessness, but what John would call self-deception. A second condition, being obedient, right? We've talked about it before. Now he really hits it hard in, in chapter 3, verse 10 and following. Um, he actually draws here on a classic scene, another scene from Genesis, this time from the story of Cain and Abel. Let's just take a look at it briefly. Verse 11, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's Jesus' own words, right? John 13, 34. And not be like, and he brings up Cain. Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, it's obvious that this is a very apt a character to bring up because what John actually has in his community is hatred within his community, right? There's obviously the tensions that are boiling over are causing friction, antagonism, um, perhaps not actual murder, but in a sense spiritual murder, right? Which is to say a kind of deep-seated antagonism towards one another. Maybe even some of those who are on the right side of things are hating those who are outside. And he says, you can't do that either, right? So he's really laying down the law here in terms of um, of obedience, of renouncing sin, and he uses that classic example of Cain and Abel. This is the only mention of Cain, by the way, in the entire New Testament. Verse 16, uh, by this we know love. Here he call, recalls Jesus' words in the upper room and explains that our love must be like Christ. And I'm going to talk about that famous love commandment in just a couple minutes, coming up to it here. Uh, look at verse 19 and 20. Um, a little tricky, and so I gave you my own translation. Let me read first from the Revised Standard. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Here's my own humble sort of retranslation of that, and I hope it helps. By this we really know that we belong to the truth, and if our feelings persuade us otherwise, we will convince our hearts in front of him, for God knows all, and he is mightier than our hearts. It's imperfect, but looking at the Greek, it's the best I can do to kind of put it in simple language. In other words, John is trying to, to help us from those kind, that kind of what I call self-talk. You know, sometimes we get those lies or tapes that play in our head. He's basically saying, don't let your hearts condemn you, right? God is greater than those emotions which ebb and flow here. Again, verse 24, all who keep his commandments abide in him and he in them. Okay, so for him, again, very practical, simple advice Keep on keeping on in the commandments. The third condition, uh, reject worldliness. Look at verse 4. This is a great one. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. 
test them to see whether they are of God. Okay? Healthy Christians then and now are prudent to whom and what leads them. That should challenge us regarding the messages we hear, whether it's, whether it's politicians, whether it's people in our uh, sphere of influence, whether it's uh, books. There's all sorts of dimensions here, friends, right? We should be prudent in praying about who has influence over us. We must exercise spiritual discernment. And John's criterion, very simple, is this. All spiritual leaders or messages begin by confessing the word incarnate when it comes to Christianity itself. That's the foundation of truth. If that's absent, then you've got big problems. Now, the fourth one is be loving. And now we come to that great teaching in chapter 4, right? God is love, right? Look at verse 8, one of the most famous uh, sayings in all of uh, Scripture, at least in the New Testament. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And I brought with Pope Benedict's first encyclical, Deus Certus Est, great reading to follow up this series. But let me just say a few words about this very um, sort of famous passage. Well, to begin with, John was called the beloved disciple, right, in John's gospel. So he's sometimes called the apostle of love because he so focuses on it in so many ways. I want to bring in here a little bit, um, a little bit of insight from C.S. Lewis, the great 20th century writer, who wrote a great book It's on the reading list as a recommended follow-up, The Four Loves. And C.S. Lewis explained that there are at least four types of love classically, and their Greek words are on the bottom of five, top of six, storge, phileo, eros, and agape. They're all beautiful and valuable in their own ways. Storge is kind of the love of a mother for a child, Lewis explains. Phileo, brotherly love, I want to come back to that one. Um, eros, the love between a man and a woman, which, by the way, Benedict says the Bible never condemns. But it's, he also says that in marriage and in relationships, eros has to be perfected because it's something that can lead into a kind of hedonism or passion if, it's not, uh, if we don't apply self-mastery to it. So it's a good thing, but it needs to be um, purified right, through Christ. And agapao or agape, which is God's selfless love. Um, just a word about phileo and agape. At the end of John's gospel, um, he talks about well, we see that Christ reinstating Peter. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Now, here's what's interesting. The first two times that Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? The word in Greek is agapao. Do you love me with God's selfless love, the kind of love I exhibited from the cross? All three times, Peter responds, phileo, 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 which is to say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you as a brother. So Christ's love is calling him to be up here. Peter's love is down here. The third time Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? He, what I call, condescends to Peter's level and says, Peter, do you love me? Phileo. Now, here's what I make of that. Jesus has high ambitions for Peter to live in his own love, in selfless love, divine love, which he taught him and gives him even now in the sacraments, right? Peter is still making sense of this and is only capable, in that moment at least, of loving Christ with the brotherly love that he truly had for him, which was strong, but still, in a sense, human. And when Christ comes down and says, Peter, do you love me as a brother? And, and Peter confirms it. That's where they begin to build the process, right? That's not the end. That's the beginning. Where and when does Peter transition from um, phileo for Christ to agapao? It's anybody's guess somewhere in the book of Acts. But certainly at the end of his life, he was filled with agapao because when Peter was crucified in Rome in the year 64, 65, 
He insisted that he was crucified upside down, that he would not be crucified in the same manner of his Lord. We can certainly say that between 30 AD and 64, 65, Peter learned those lessons through serving the church, through preaching and teaching the truth, through evangelism, and through his own liturgical life of worship and prayer. He learned bit by bit agapao, and Christ taught that to him. And he'll do the same for us. If you worry that your love is not strong enough, begin with the love that you have for Christ and ask Him to make it stronger day by day. So just a great little prayer I try to uh, do in my own family. Lord, help our love to be stronger for you. Lord, help my love to be stronger for you. Take, take it where it's at and try to perfect it for us. Please, Lord. Um, verse 18, perfect love casts out fear. I know we're running out of time here. Um, this is another great teaching in John's gospel, because fear can often paralyze us, and John's prescription is once again, if you live in love, divine love, Christ's love, uh, it will help, doesn't mean it's going to just eradicate, eviscerate fear, but it will help over time to um, diminish fear so that love grows stronger. Here's a great Old Testament verse to take home with you, Exodus 14, 14. Exodus 14, 14, I simply call it 14, 14, and 14, 14 basically says, be still and I will fight for you. That's a great kind of notion to take with us with what John is saying, because otherwise we tend to fight and have to try to own the battle. And Christ says, just step back, just be and let me go do this for you and with you. The fifth condition, the final one, keeping the faith. Very interesting passage here. I want to read uh, the verses here. Um, in chapter, um, where is it? Chapter 4 and verse, uh, chapter 5, verse um, 6 through 8, chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with water and blood. And the Spirit is the witness because the Spirit is the truth. This seems kind of a perplexing passage, and in some ways it is. But I think what he's referring to here is Jesus' earthly ministry, once again, which began with his baptism in the Jordan and culminated in his, if you will, baptism of blood. See Catechism 463 on that at his crucifixion in Jerusalem. To parallel this, John is pointing out that we are not simply baptized with water. We're not. We are baptized into Christ's death. So Christ's death gives us the fullest meaning to what Christian baptism is. In him we are buried, and in him we are raised. Moreover, this language of blood points beyond the sacrament of baptism to the ongoing and frequent reception of the Holy Eucharist, something that apparently the... Uh, heretics uh, felt comfortable leaving behind. The last thing he leaves them with is what I would call a sense of Christian confidence. Look at the final verses of the letter beginning in 513. I write this to you so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know or have confidence that you have eternal life in you. And this is the confidence which we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's not a carte blanche, right? I'll do anything for you. It's you have to ask according to his will. I was talking to an undergrad today, and he said, Dr. Smith, does Jesus answer prayers in the same way today as he did when he was in, here in his earthly ministry? And I think the answer is, you know, God always hears our prayers, right? And he wants to answer those prayers. But is it possible that there's four different approaches that God has for us? Maybe it's no, slow, grow, or go. Let's take one of them at a time, right? No, sometimes, you know, we have a prayer intention in mind. His answer is no. Perhaps it is not no, but it is slow. I have some work for you to do before I'm going to open up this door for you. Is it possible that along with slow, it's maybe also grow? It's not just a matter of time and patience that you need, but there is some kind of work that you need to do emotionally, spiritually, physically, whatever it may be. 
And the last one I think is often the toughest one here, which is actually go. How many times is he actually sending us, commissioning to do something, and we're just not in a place to hear it? Um, the Catechism has a nice uh, uh, little addition here, which I'll let you read. It's, it's 2737 about prayer, okay? One final little um, tidbit in the letter that's very interesting is um, in verse 16, he says near the very end of the letter, if anyone sees his brother committing what is not a mortal sin, he will ask him and God will give him life for those whose sin is not mortal. There is a sin which is mortal, which kills. I do not say that one uh, should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin which is not mortal. So in some sense, biblically, we get the foundation, or at least the beginnings of this distinction of sin, a kind of hierarchy of sin, right? So there is mortal sin, there's venial sin. Uh, I give you the reference in the catechism, which I know you all have, so you can look up the section beginning in 1854 and following, about 10 paragraphs there on the difference between mortal and venial sin, right? Um, here's just one paragraph, 1854. Sins are rightly evaluated. Sins are rightly evaluated according to their gravity. The distinction between mortal and venial sin, already evident in Scripture, and by the way, it references this right here, became part of the tradition of the church and is corroborated by human experience. And in the footnote, I give you the three criterion of mortal sin. But people ask about this, uh, is, John, uh, is John talking about a particular sin that, that kills the soul, right? Um, what is it that he's warning his, his church about? And I don't know that, in fact, I don't, I don't believe that he has a particular sin in mind, like even things that we would consider pretty, you know, drastically bad, like, like abortion or procuring abortion or assisting in that or something else like that. Um, I think the sin that he's talking about that's particularly kills the soul is turning away and continually rejecting Christ. If there is an unforgivable sin, I think the church would say that's it, right? Because Christ is always knocking at the door and wanting to come in and eat with us, as Revelation 3.20 says. So um, we need not walk around in a sense of fear of mortal sin, but at the same time, John reminds us of this truth that there is sin and a sin which can really kill grace in our souls, and to be seeking frequent uh, sacrament of reconciliation about that. The final words of the letter are this, verse 18 through 20, we know that anyone born of God does not sin or continually sin, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not or cannot touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is in the power of the evil one. And John says, I'll take my chances, I'll stay with Christ, right? And we know that the Son of God has come and has give, given us understanding to know Him who is true, and we who are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Three very short letters, three of the shortest books in all of Scripture, but a wealth of spiritual fruit for us, is there not, in these letters. And I hope that between last night and tonight, I've given you uh, some good things to think about. I know for me it's been beneficial to go through this as well, and so I hope it's been useful for you. I wanted to point out that um, if you didn't receive the handout, there is a supplement. Uh, I think they're in the back. It's just one page, and there's two things on here. One is some suggested readings. Uh, Pope Benedict's encyclical would be a good place to start. Um, Raymond Brown's book, if you're interested in more of the kind of history of the community, and then for sure C.S. Lewis's Four Loves a Great Book. Quickly, some follow-up questions for you to discuss with one another at home, whatever. How about this? To what extent is my faith rooted in an intimate relationship with Christ incarnate, the risen Jesus, not merely ideas, practices, etc.? 
How about this one? To what extent would other people say his life, his work, his ministry, her ministry, her life is characterized by love? What about this one? Which of the four loves would I like to learn more about and grow in? Love of God, brotherly love, love for my children, also parents, grandparents, love for my spouse. And then what about this one? John places a high value on keeping Christ's commandments. Which of the Ten Commandments these days are you struggling with the most? Read through the Sermon on the Mount and ask Christ for the grace to embrace his gentle yoke. Lastly, um, on the back side of the page um, is a little bit about um, my series I brought with you. I'm very excited to share this with you tonight. It's called The House of the Lord. Um, I basically, what I wanted to do was develop and devote myself for about two years to developing a biblical theology, like how you could actually make sense of the whole Bible, and here it is. It's called The House of the Lord, A Biblical Theology of the Temple in the Old and New Testaments. It's 20, 25 hours and 20-some minutes over 20 CDs. And the outline for it is 308 pages. It's just a book waiting to be printed, basically. But it's, it's on my uh, website for free. Now, on the website that I uh, use, they're on there tonight for uh, 135 plus uh, tax or whatever they have. And I can offer you tonight at $99, almost 30% off. So I only have a few. If you want one, come and grab one. And uh, hopefully the questions that I'm also leaving you with will be uh, useful. Thank you so much for letting me be with you once again. It's always a pleasure. God bless you. Dr. Smith, you've been on the other side. I was just curious what it was uh, like as a non-Catholic to read this and see something different in it than what we saw tonight. I, by other side, I don't know if you meant on the heretical side or what. <laughs> no, yeah. No, it's a good, a good question, Bob. I guess restating it. Uh, how would a, a, a non-Catholic Christian read this letter? Well, I think in some ways, probably they would get a lot out of it, what we got out of it. I mean, I always start with what we have in common. Um, I think that it needs to be said that um, there, there is unfortunately a lot of, you know, characterizations that we have of one another. I had characterizations of, of evangelicals as a Catholic growing up and, and non-Catholic Christians. And then I think as an evangelical, I had stereotypes and, and characterizations of, of Catholics. And I think on both sides, those mischaracterizations tend, when they tend to be shallow, they tend not to be helpful, right? Like I hear a lot of Catholics say, you know, not really meanly, but say, oh, all evangelicals, they kind of go to these churches and they're two inches deep. And that's not always true. I know some evangelicals have just deep, deep faith. My um, deacon at my church, who's uh, fully received into the church, obviously he's a deacon, used to be a Protestant pastor. And I love to hear him, his homilies, because he can he go an hour for me, I'd be happy because he's, uh, I know other people wouldn't be, but he, he's just so many great insights. So many Protestants have many things to teach us. Okay, um, I think what a Protestant might take away from this letter um, that might be different from us, is there's a lot that's in this letter that, if you think about it, is really very sacramental. Um, and that shouldn't surprise us because John's gospel is very sacramental. Uh, Scott Hahn uh, calls John the, the Catholic gospel. And it always kind of bugs me because I'm like, well, all four gospels are, cosp- are, are Catholic, right? But I think what he means is, in a particular way, John really just kind of, you know, shouts out with these Catholic themes. And he's right about that. But... Um, Certainly the, the sacraments, right? I mean, baptism, we've seen as we looked at it last week and this week, is um, for John, the beginning of the Christian life. For a lot of evangelicals, baptism is a kind of sign of faithfulness, but it's not necessarily the beginning of their Christian life. The Eucharist, uh, it comes up in a lot of implicit ways in the letter, I think. 
And obviously we have a lot of differences reading John the same way. Uh, um, I'm not really sure how a Protestant who holds to a literal reading of Scripture can read John 6 and not see the Eucharist in there. I just don't understand it. Um, so maybe that's more in John's Gospel. I know you asked about this letter. Um, I think confession is another one because obviously that takes us back into um, confessing our sins in a sacramental sense. Um, and for many uh, non-Catholic Christians, confession is something that really, for the most part, is not part of their experience. Um, I'll tell you something interesting. When I was at Willow Creek Church, which is a um, megachurch in Chicago, and I talked about this on the Journey Home show, um, there, when I was just about ready to leave there, there was a new phenomenon there of spiritual direction, spiritual formation. Well, it's not new for Catholics, right? It's as old as you can imagine. But I think that that probably was the case because many um, evangelicals know in their heart that what they need is accountability. They need someone to walk with them. Um, Pope Francis has been talking about what he calls uh, spiritual accompaniment, right, which is a great phrase that really talks about walking together in Christ. So these are just a few things that I think maybe um, evangelicals might not really grab hold. The mortal sin thing, obviously, for them would be another stumbling block where they would say, well, no, you know, assurance of salvation. So, um, but as a Catholic, I think it only just confirms in our faith the necessity of the sacraments and so many other particularly Catholic dimensions of the faith that are so important. This is a great letter, and I, I hope, I, I really mean it. I had so much fun doing this tonight because for me, it's a great reminder of so many things that I need to be reminded of too as a Catholic. So thank you. Um, any other questions, Monica? Yes, well, I, I did have something about, do you think that, one quick question and then another. Uh, whether that confession, it sounds like it's individual confession of your sins, and I wondered whether that is what he's talking about, because I suppose it might be because of the heretics not wanting to confess sins. Right, well, it, yes, and if you, if you look at the sacrament, I mean, obviously can't go into any great depth there, but if you look at how, uh, you know, what someone like St. John Chrysostom or other relatively early church figures um, described the sacrament as a, a penance and what, how it was being developed. Um, it was often uh, a kind of ministry of the bishop, right? Now today, in, in the church, for most people, the, the, you know, it's our parish priest. So there's, there's different ways that it was expressed. But I don't think John means simply one Christian to another. I think he, what he's really getting at is you need to be anchored in the, in the apostolic church. And if you're not rooted in, in the means of the sacraments, especially baptism, Eucharist, confession of sin, um, and all the sacraments, then in some sense, we're, we're more at risk of kind of drifting away from the center. The same thing with the commandments. For, the, for John, the commandments aren't, um, they're not optional, right? And he, he's not sort of uh, talking about a legalism, right? But he's basically saying that if you, if you go back and you remember what Christ taught us in his words and try to practice them, we'll actually be growing spiritually as we do these things. Because as we do them, we're fulfilling uh, the, the plan that Christ had for us of how to live the successful spiritual life. The problem that this schismatic group got into was they basically said, no, we're, we're good to go. We've got what we need from the Holy Spirit. And John saw right through that and said, that's just basically kind of a, uh, a lie. Now, one last comment, if I can, and I'll get to your other one, is um, we have a number of seminarians that go out and do evangelization at, at colleges, like George Mason and others, and they've really been very successful at these uh, because they're very, it's very um, not in your face, it's very conversational. And one of the guys came back, and uh, 
he told me about a conversation he had with a Catholic, not a Protestant, not an agnostic, but a Catholic. And the Catholic wanted to know, he said, so you're talking about salvation. What do I need to be saved from? You know, and I think it's a, a pretty um, um, important point that needs to be made, which is I think we need, to be, we need to have preaching and teaching that points to the reality of sin and sinfulness, right? And they're not, not, not to be overly focused on that, but I think that there is a generation of Catholics that are very disconnected from the reality. of. So they know the word, but they're, they're not, it's really compartmentalized as a thing they hear in church periodically, but not really where they would actually think about and evaluate their life, do something like an examination of conscience. I think it'd be great for um, youth ministers or youth groups to help kids do, you know, learn what an examination of conscience is and do it nightly. So they could actually begin doing a kind of spiritual inventory of their life, and certainly for us as well. Right, just not, not, it's not that we want to be um, contemplating our sins, but we do want to be contemplating our sinfulness, which points us to our need, which takes us back to Christ. Okay, and that's where the sacrament of confession uh, comes in. Now, you had another? What input do you think that Our Lady had on St. John? He was so young, when, and I think when I see how he grew, I think it was Our Lady. But what is, what is your oh, thought? Oh, I'm absolutely convinced of that as well. Madam, I think um, one of the questions that comes up about John was how old was he relative to the other apostles? We don't know, but according to tradition, and certainly you can see this even into, you know, much later in Renaissance painting and so on, right, is that John was very likely the youngest of the apostles. This is also confirmed by his age. He died of natural causes, right, lived through several persecutions, and died at the end of the first century of, of natural causes, um, several times exiled on, on Patmos and so on. Um, it's also possible that his youth was uh, maybe in a particular way attractive to Christ, given the fact that many of the others who were with him, may, he brought something different to that mix of the apostles, right? His youth, his, um, his passion, his vigor. It may also be one of the things that led John to the foot of the cross. I've often thought, why did John get through and the others didn't? Well, we always say it's because the others ran away. Well, maybe it's possible that John just kind of slipped under the because who cares if this teenager goes in here, right? I mean, and, and the woman, what are they going to do? But someone like Peter will keep him away, right? He's going to cut someone's ear off again. Um, but I, I, I think that um, as far as your question about Our Lady, it's obvious when you read his gospel that there is a particular love and intimacy that he has, even the way he describes her, right, in chapter 2 and also later in... Um, in the end of the book, at the foot of the cross, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And then also sacred tradition, which tells us that he really did take her into his home. And of course, John spends the latter part of his life in Asia Minor in the, in the church called Ephesus, right, which we learn about in Ephesians. And uh, the home of the Blessed Virgin Mary was there where, of course, uh, according to tradition, she spent the last days of her earthly life, and John was with her. So I think they had a very beautiful um, very, very lively relationship that we don't really, on this side of heaven, know much about, but we do have enough in Scripture to tell us that it had to be so much grace that he drew. In his, and I think that's why his letters are so permeated by so much grace and so much uh, um, emphasis on love, because he had the example of that with him as his own mother. Can you imagine that? For decades in his life. And I think that when you read his, all of his writings, including Revelation, by the way, it's unmistakable, his love for the Blessed Virgin Mary. Thank you. It's a great question. I assume that the um, community being written here and the problem that's having these problems is Ephesus, but I think that these got distributed and read throughout. And so were these seem sort of problems in other communities? Do we 
Yeah, kind of a, maybe a twofold question there. I, the, one, the one is, uh, what churches or church was this? The most likely answer is Ephesus, but that we shouldn't be 100% sure because like all the apostles, they were you know, what we call today church planners, right? So it's very possible that um, the, it may not have been the sort of you know, um, main church in Ephesus. It may have been other, some other community. We don't know. We just don't have enough data to know, but it's very likely it was in, from that latter part of his life. Um, in Revelation, there are actually seven churches that are mentioned. The first one is Ephesus, and then it goes on and mentions six more, and they're actually mentioned in, let's take I do this right for you, in kind of a clockwise fashion. It begins with Ephesus down here and ends with the last one, which is Laodicea, and it actually kind of closely follows the postal code or the postal route of that ancient time. So it's possible that that letter of Revelation actually started in Ephesus' home church and then moved on. Each of these were about 50 miles apart until it reached the final one. Right? So they would have read the letter, and um, it's possible that this letter in the same way kind of went distributed to other churches, not just one, that various communities, plural, actually read it. Um, I think you had another question about were these uh, schisms going on in other churches. Yeah, Paul deals with um, the so-called super apostles that he talks about in his letters, which were really not apostles at all. He's using that in kind of a um, pejorative term to describe them. Um, and I, yeah, it certainly, it certainly seems to be the case that wherever the Christian church was, there were schismatic possibilities, but re you really see them flowering in the second century with the death of the apostles. I think there's a particular grace and strength when the apostles were forming those churches that kept them pretty strong. But when you got into the second century and third century, you see what uh, Irenaeus is dealing with. I mean, Irenaeus, some say, almost single-handedly sort of saved the church from heresy through um, his writings, through his face-to-face -face admonitions. And so it's after the age of the apostles that this stuff really begins to bloom. But yeah, I think it was going on, and this is a great example of it that we had had tonight. Is that the last one? Or okay. Thank you, Thank you all so much. God bless you. See you soon. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.